How are we doing today? Everybody know? Well, my name is Steve. I'm one of the elders at the church here. It is good to be in your presence. Do me a favor. Um, grab a blue Bible because we'll be going through the scriptures today. There are some in the pew. Or if you are of the technologically able ilk, you may pull one up on your smartphone provided that that is actually what you're looking at. Do not be Instagramming during the church. There's plenty of time for that. This is good. Yeah, we've got selfies happening in the back. So, um, and we will be in Luke 16 if you want to preempt that right now. You guys, it's funny just to see the little cameras coming up now because all of you think you're funny, but you're just not. You're, everybody's, yeah, that's going to be it. So now everybody's just like, wait a second, I can use my smartphone in church and I have permission, but really I don't have to look at the verse? No, this is your time with Jesus. Take it seriously. Okay. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, I, I, this is kind of a, a personal subject. I've known people who have had to grapple with this, but um, you know, so just trying to sensitively bring something up because sometimes we think things are just like funny and a joke, and uh, you know, it, it, maybe it is funny in certain contexts. But when you know people who have had to grapple with certain things, it's not as much. But if you um, have known somebody, or maybe you personally have been through Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you, you probably know even culturally the idea of how a regular Alcoholics Anonymous interaction starts, and that is by a person who is beginning to share by saying the phrase, hello, my name is whomever, and I am an alcoholic. And then the response of people in the AA group is, well, you know, hi, Bill, or whoever the name of the person is. Um, I use Bill right here because the very first member of Alcoholics Anonymous was its founder. Back in the mid-1930s, this country was gripped in the midst of a Great Depression, and one of the ways that people sought to deal with the pain and stress of that depression was to really embrace alcohol. Now, this is something, if you're really interested in the subject, it's fascinating because Ken Burns has an entire documentary on prohibition. And as much as we think we Americans have figured out that nice balance between, you know, sobriety and drunkenness, uh, our country did not at all. And what happened during the Great Depression is it exacerbated to the point to that this country had a major alcohol problem. And Bill Wilson of Akron, Ohio was actually one of those individuals. And he got into contact with another person who really helped him over his issue. And for the m majority of the rest of his life, and there was an interesting anecdote at the end of his life where right on his deathbed he's like I'd like a drink and the people around him said no you can't do that you're Bill you know like you started Alcoholics Anonymous you can't do that and he he died kind of grumpy that's like a really that's the story I wanted to tell today but then I was like I don't think this is applicable but I dropped that anyways but here's the thing is that uh, Bill Wilson of Akron was like this uh, a person who really marched the, uh, the advancement of trying to combat alcohol uh, through anonymity. Which is interesting because, again, if, if at the beginning of, you know, your statement in Alcoholics Anonymous is the idea that, hey, this is who I am, like, this is my name, and isn't there a certain irony attached to it, is that after all of that, like, you're not actually supposed to share the name. That's the anonymous aspect of it. So throughout his life, nobody knew who the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous was. He, he was just known as Bill W. To the extent that sometimes when people don't want to talk about being an AA, they said, uh, you know, when they're trying to broach the subject. They say, are you friends with Bill? And that's how it became known. 
So fascinating is at the end of his life, he dies, and a lot of the obituaries out him as the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was this little controversy surrounding it. It's that, no, he was supposed to be anonymous, but he actually put within his will that he was fine being known after his death. But you would wonder, like, what is the shift within that? And Bill's perspective about anonymity was this. This is a quote from him. Anonymity isn't just something to save us from alcoholic shame and stigma. Its deeper purpose is to keep those fool egos of ours from running hog wild after money and fame. So his point was, one of the things about anonymity is it's supposed to protect us from embracing power. Now, I say this as a transition, I'm going to bring this back here, is that we're in the midst, and actually we're not in the midst, we're, we're concluding our series today of finding the gospel and story. And what we've been doing the past few weeks is we've been examining some of the stories that Jesus told, parables, throughout his time on earth. And we're trying to see where we find, you know, there, there being something more robust there than maybe we today notice. You know, the story is powerful. Chris noted that in the beginning of this series. And as we come to its conclusion, we're going to open up the scripture and yet another story here from the New Testament that Jesus told that has some power. And we'll, we'll come back to the anonymity aspect of this uh, moving forward. But let's just really look at the uh, context of this and we are in Luke chapter 16 and it's interesting because what we tend to do still when we read the Bible is we go straight at the stories but we don't look at the incident that leads to the story so I'll tell you today is in Luke 16 we have a story but this story is actually one of confrontation and it's not how we usually like to picture our Jesus right we want Jesus who's extending arms and cuddling us and petting sheep but we don't like the Jesus who's walking through the temple with a whip carrying out justice, right? But this is a point. In Luke 16, Jesus is forced to bring out the whip and talk about justice. And usually, the target of justice was those who should have known better who were the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus' critique is generally for those people who are supposed to be teachers of the law, and yet they've misconstrued it to the point that they've co-opted it to something that it should not have been. So really, the preface to the story that we'll talk about begins, and we won't go through this, in Luke chapter up, and that's supposed to be 16, verse 13 right here. And this is the, what Jesus says to a group of people, but predominantly talking to the religious leaders of the day. He makes the statement, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you're like, okay, how is this making the Pharisees and the teacher of the law feel well, later here within the text, and we're at, again, I didn't even change the verse. I got a little lazy here, folks. But in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, the next verse, we see that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. So it's important to understand, before this confrontational gospel story that he tells, what is Jesus' goal right here? And he is speaking out against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because of how they acted. He says, look, there are two masters in this world that you can serve, but you have to figure out which one it is, God and money. I'll admit to you, it's just on the surface of that of that confrontation, I don't like it because I don't like polarization options, right? Like, as much as some people love black and white, I appreciate and live in the gray. And generally, Jesus comes down on the side of gray. 
You know, he's just like, you know, as, when you think something is, is perfect or you think something is completely flawed, usually there's some bit of truth there that you're not seeing. But in this incident, he's very clear. He's trying to give us a polarizing option. God and money, you've got to choose which one you're going to follow. And for the teachers of the law, this is very important. Because we know through historical context is that they were actually the wealthiest people in the land of Israel at the time. In fact, one of the reasons that they were teachers of the law and they had the time is because they had the financial resources not to have to work, but they could sit and study all day. In Jesus' time, in that world, uh, somewhere between 93 and 95% of the people in ancient Palestine lived in poverty, and the rest were generally the teachers of the law. Now, why is Jesus calling this out? Why is he trying to say, look, you need to pick who you're choosing? The problem is, is that they had all the resources, and other people had none, and they were unwilling to share their resources with the people who had none. You have to ask yourself why. The first reason was because those resources for them were power. Because among the Romans who ruled that area at the time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had money, and therefore they had influence with Rome. So they could have a better subsistence. They, they did not have to worry about, uh, you know, where they were going to find their next meal. And as a result of that, that money for them was security and faith. It was something certain. Isn't that interesting? Because that's usually how we view finance today, right? The second thing that's important to, to see here is that as much as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had all that they could do with, the thing was is that they were not sharing with the people who had none. And they were the shepherds of the people of Israel. So if they were going to be the leaders, why wouldn't they share? Because they believed that their wealth and opulence was God showing favor on them. It was health and wellness. It was that, look, we have this because God has blessed us. You poor people don't have it because God has not blessed you. You need to figure out how to live better. So we're going to enter into what I believe to be the most difficult story that Jesus actually told in all the Bible. And you might even know this story, and it still might weird you out, but our goal was going to be, as we read through it this morning, to try to do justice to show exactly what Jesus was trying to do. So as we go into this challenging story, we are in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. I'm going to do the reading myself here this morning. So if you'll follow along in your, in your Bibles, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. I hope you're ready to beat the Baptist to the buffet because that is some powerful imagery. Now what we see here is the introduction of two characters. A rich man and a poor man. And what Jesus tries to tell in this story is he tries to set them up as polar opposites, right? So we see that on this social economic scale, right? One is rich and one is poor, but recognize how Jesus goes on to further describe the difference between the two. Because, because he uses this imagery to try to give us, you know, an idea of how 
wide the separation between the two is. The rich man is clothed, and we see this being clothed in purple. Purple was not a, it's not a natural color. It was one that would have to be manufactured in, in their clothing, which means that clothes has to be dyed. So what it is showing is the increase in value of the clothes that the rich man was clothed in. At the same time, while the rich man was clothed in, in, in luxurious items, the, the poor man is clothed in sores. All right? And what this is showing is that the, 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 this man, while living on the street, and by the way, artist rendition, I guess, and this is an ancient, you know, I say ancient, 100-year-old plus uh, drawing of what we see right here. You see the, the rich man clothed, and then the poor one would be on the street. Okay, and as a result, the idea that he was not able to take care of his body would have sores. And sometimes there's all these implications of what, you know, the sores would consist of. One thing we do see is that there's, you know, leprosy was a predominant disease that there was no cure for back then. And so, so you see that rich man clothed here, poor man clothed with sores. You see, the rich man has a table, a feast at his disposal all the time, whereas the poor man sat in the shadow of the table, longing to be able to eat some of what was available. One thing that we need to know in this story that's very interesting, and we'll, we'll bring this around later, but that Jesus uh, does not name the rich man, but he does provide a name for the poor man, Lazarus. And for some of you that are familiar with the scriptures, you're like, wait a second, I know Lazarus. That's a biblical name. He had a couple sisters. He kind of had this death thing, and Jesus rose him back from the dead. Like, this whole story. But understand is that Lazarus was just a, a basic name within that ancient Near East time. So that this is not that Lazarus. One thing that we know is that Lazarus even owned a house. He was not homeless. So we know that this is not an implication for that biblical Lazarus. But he has provided a name right here. So we see the chasm created between these two people. One last thing before we move on that I find interesting is that with the introduction to dogs to the story, and as some of you guys, you know, again, everywhere I go now, I just really think that dogs are the new gods of our age, and it probably makes sense because, you know, dog backwards is God. I, I just see everywhere where, like, you know, people post pictures of them, and they, you know, they, they I, I see people who claim that dogs are actual members of their families and stuff, and whatever with that. In the ancient Near East, Dogs were actually seen as scavenger animals. They were not fully domesticated. And as such, in Hebraic belief, this idea of cleanness, this idea that in order to worship before the God, you had to be ceremonially clean, one of the unclean animals were dogs. So if you have your dog and you love your dog, that's an unclean animal. The Lord you know, has cursed it, and that, that is how it works out. Now, the interesting thing is that we, we see the sores on Lazarus, but then it was also that the dogs licked the sores, which again, that's really graphic, but understand that Jesus is telling that for purpose. Because if the dog is licking the sores on Lazarus, then Lazarus is doubly cursed because there's no way being unclean, licked by an unclean animal, that he would have the chance to worship at the temple. Okay, so what Jesus is showing here is that the difference between the rich man and Lazarus, it's a large spread, but this is not just a financial issue, it's also a spiritual issue. And again, who is the rich man in this story? The Pharisees, right? This is a confrontational story. The Pharisees are like, this is cool. Because, you know, the rich man, we are the rich man. We are the favored. We are that person. But what Jesus is trying to show here is that, look, you are the spiritual shepherds of Israel, but you have people in your country who are unclean, living at the lowest, who you won't help out. That is a problem. 
So Jesus continues in the story. Now, I've put this up here. I, again, my, my slides is all, are all wrong today, so go. I'm going to just read verse 23. So if you will look in Luke 16, let's read verses 22 and then 23 right here. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Okay, this thing just got a little freaky. So let's, this is why this is, a, this is one of Jesus' probably most controversial stories. Because for us living today, we're like, what's going on here? Okay, so the first thing is that Jesus is working with a prevailing statistic that one out of every one people die. So therefore, it's interesting that no matter who it was, whether it be the rich man or Lazarus, their ending is the same. They see death. They die. Okay? But here's the difference. The Pharisees who are listening to the story is like, we know how this is going to work out. We are the favored. God has blessed us with all this stuff. So we will go to heaven, and Lazarus, poor man, goes to hell. Right? But what does Jesus do? A classic reversal. This is what Jesus likes to do all the time in his storytelling. What he likes to say is, look, this is how you think the world works. This is how you think spirituality works. I'm going to flip the script on you and blow your mind. And yes, their minds are blown. Because what you have, not only is that they're going opposite ways. And by the way, I think I even have this. Look at this. This is the most powerful slide I've done just to make sure that we explain it. But the reason that this is an interesting uh, concept is that this blows their mind because we see that Lazarus, the poor man, is actually hanging out with Abraham. And Abraham is a sign of the people of God. He, was a, he lived thousands of years before Jesus. He was the father of God's people. And therefore, you know, so, kind of like how we view St. Peter today as like that who holds heaven in Jesus' time, it was Abraham. So instead of the rich people, the Pharisees, thinking that their lives would lead them to hanging out with Abraham, and by the way, that's your K KJV, your King James Version there, where it says like in Abraham's bosom, and you're like, that's, I noticed I'd even pull this in here, because if you can figure that one out, that was just a really bad translation. So NIV's just like, let's put him at Abraham's side, because his bosom, I don't even know about that. Boy, I get distracted even myself. But here's the point, is that the poor man was now hanging out with Abraham, and the rich man was not. Now, why this story becomes difficult for us is that it's Jesus himself introduces the concept of hell. And I would say that we Christians today really kind of struggle with hell. It was known for, oh, picture for effect. Let's see how that turns up in the, yeah. I didn't know if that coloration would work, but we've got like just enough light. It's pretty nice. That's not at all scary right? Um, which is maybe one of the reasons like, we don't like to think about this. Understand, though, that for centuries, well-intentioned Christians used hell as a negative motivator in order to, for people to follow Christ. Actually, I was, I was at D.C. a few months ago, and um, they actually had Jonathan Edwards' Bible, and not the seance Jonathan Edwards that lives today, but a, but a preacher who lived back in the 17th century. And actually, it was the Bible from where he wrote in his notes a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And what Edwards did was painted this crazy picture of, you know, somebody being held by a string over the fire of hell. And apparently that sermon was so pervasive in the 17th century, it helped start the Second Great Awakening. Right? 
Like, so he literally scared the hell out of people as a means to try and find Jesus. But you would think that that's an antiquated view. <laughs> Actually, just last year, I, was, I remember talking to somebody that was in the hospital, and their well-meaning Christian relative came to them and started telling me, was like, now are you really right with Jesus? Because, you know, you could go to hell if you're not. And it's like, <laughs> thanks for coming to the hospital. That's great. Like, you could have brought flowers or just anything. But instead, you brought, like, this terrifying picture of why I need to fix my life. Um, I'm going to tell you this. This is why this story has always been misconstrued. This story that Jesus is telling is really not about heaven and hell. Okay? But because it's here, let me just... Two things that I think are important because we have to touch on it because Jesus mentions it. And and it's so pervasive. It just demands just a couple concepts. So just two things about this. The first thing is that I don't think we can ignore hell. I think we Christians today find it so unpalatable that we don't want to talk about it. Now, again, even as a theologian, as we look at hell, I, I don't understand it fully. You know, we do see that, you know, as much as if you want to say, well, hell might not be real, people like to explain it off, but the same terms that are spoken of about heaven are also used towards hell. So to say that it doesn't exist or it's not something to be trifled with, I think we need to do it. Now, you know, that, that's something we, we need to come to grips that there's a reality. If you believe in the scriptures that hell exists. But at the same time, I think the thing that we need to do is be careful how much we emphasize it. Because as much as we want to say we know about it, there's really tons that we don't. There are only, in the entire Bible, 20 references to hell altogether. And you're like, really? It's got to be more than that. No, friends, it's not much more than that is that there's so much more that Jesus talks about the power of the gospel. Not just for us for eternity, but for today. We, we don't want to ignore it, but at the same time, don't overemphasize it. If I'm ever talking to somebody about Jesus, you know, I, I'm not going to ignore hell completely. Sometimes they want to bring that up to me first as a way to try to make me feel really awkward. But more importantly, I'm going to say, look, there's so much more in the scriptures that God tells us about eternal dwelling with him that the hell aspect of it is. And it's, it's just not as robust. So instead of fixating on it, we have to understand is that Jesus talks about it, it exists, but this is the key to this story. It's not the focus. Okay? It's not the focus. And that's why I wanted you to bear with me as we read through the rest of this story. And we're going to start in verse 24 to the conclusion of what Jesus says. Luke 16, 24 to 31. So the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in that fire. By the way, I put this verse later, but still that doesn't speak well to the whole hell thing, right? Like, it's just like, uh, I don't like that. But Abraham replies, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. And the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. (gasps) Boom, right? That's your point of Christian reality. So let's acknowledge the end, right? What he is saying is like, look, you're just saying, send somebody from the dead to go tell people about 
you know, about this solution, and they'll change. And Jesus is like, look, even if somebody who rose from the dead did it, they still won't believe. And friends, that's a reality for that day and age and for here, right? When we come down to belief, there's so much not to believe, and you're just like, man, if only God just gave more proof today, you know, just some verifiable truth so that people would believe. Friends, faith is seeing of what is not there, and we know this societally, right? There are things called 9-11 truthers out there. People who believe, yeah, that, that it didn't, you know, that was an inside job, it didn't happen. Those planes, you know, you can't melt steel, all this type of stuff. We have Holocaust deniers, right? We have people, the craziest ones to me is that a few years ago, the shooting at Sandy Hook took place where a bunch of poor little kids were mowed down to school and there are people who don't believe that that event actually took place, Okay. So this is not like, I'm not talking about did Moses part the Red Sea. I'm talking about stuff that we have videotaped from where people are like, no, that just didn't happen. So let's get real and say that what Jesus' point here is that, look, you want to be able to say, you know, they'll believe if they can just see some sort of sign. Friends, they had a litany of signs and they still didn't believe. They killed the Son of God. And even today, if we long for something else, it's, it's not going to be there. Now. That's just the side, just so I can make sure to wrap up the point of the story. But as Jesus is putting through the story, here's the thing. You have rich man in Hades. You have Lazarus with Abraham in heaven. He's just like, look, can I get some mercy because of this chasm? And Abraham says, it's just not possible. It's just not possible. So he says, okay, okay. So if I can't have that, can we at least have... Like, you know, Lazarus go back and tell people, right? Like, can we have that chasm work out for the best of things? And what that then shows us now, it's very interesting, is that we see a posture of the rich man that he did not exhibit in the world when he was alive. So now, when he's dead and he's in agony, he's, he's like, what about my family, right? And what we call that generally is compassion. True? And compassion, by the way, it's very interesting when you look at the etymology of it. We, basically, it's co-passion. And for those of us, some of you like passion, you know, we sometimes think of it as a, as a vigor, as a desire. But one of the key definitions of passion is, is, is pain. So that's one of the reasons we call it the passion of the Christ, right? Was this idea of what he went through. So this idea of co-passion literally means for us to bear each other's pain. To take that upon ourselves. And we're like, okay, so the rich man exhibited no compassion when he was alive, when he walked past Lazarus on the street. But now that he's in hell, he's like, listen, I have compassion for my family. I don't want them to experience what I'm experiencing. But recognize within this text, it is not straight up compassion. I would call it a faux compassion. Because compassion also speaks to the end result of what we're trying to seek from this. And what the rich man is still looking for is that his family who if teachers of the law and wealthy people are living the same type of lifestyle that he was living what he wants is validation through their salvation okay does this make sense so you're thinking he wants those family members of his, his brothers, to be able to hear about this so that they can <coughs> alter something. But what, what Abraham is saying is that, look, they aren't going to change from this. And so your compassion isn't necessarily even about just feeling bad for them. It's about another way for you to be able to say, like, okay, but at least I saved them. It's all about himself. 
This request is really about the rich man. Because think about this, there's so much more he could have said, then can you at least just you know, make it about the poor, but he made it about himself, and it's always about that. That's what we do, is sometimes we, we, we fake compassion when there's something at the end of the road that actually benefits us. When true compassion is to bear the pain for those who have no relief at all. So we want to see that he was trying to do right by the chasm, but he does not. And this is what I would say that is more robust than anything that Jesus is trying to show here through this chasm right here, because this gets brought up all the time. The point that he is trying to make to those who have everything, to the wealthy, is look, that chasm that exists in the eternal you have taken from eternity and brought it to earth. Jesus is critiquing the rich for bringing hell to earth. See, the, again, the gospel is not just about eternity, eternity. The gospel is about today and how we live and move and act. And what Jesus is really trying to get out of the teachers of the law is say, look, if this is eternity, then why create that here and now and hold people who have no hope and no power in a system that is just going to crush them. Stop. Switch the way you live. Transform the way that you view God's favor and blessing and own up to the power of the kingdom of God. That's what he wants to see from them. And I will tell you that there's a way that Jesus does this in the story that is so subtle that we don't pay enough attention to it. And do you know how Jesus demonstrated the transformation here in just a very simple way in his storytelling? Who are the two main characters? The rich man and Lazarus. Notice that he's never called the poor man. He's called Lazarus. One of the things that I love that I see in Scripture and that I see in the world is the power of a name. Names have power. Isn't that true? Some of you are new coming here. I'm hoping the one thing that's tough for us as regulars, we try to find out people's names. Because it's, it's nice that you come and visit for a while, but it's sometimes difficult when you're like, hey, you know, it's, it's you know, funny-looking redheaded dude that talks a lot, right? Like, is that, who is it? I don't know. You know what, that was an innocuous example, but it could be true, right? But you, you love it then when you come back and you're like, hey, and you're introduced by your name because there's a power there. We see that in the Old Testament too, which is one of the reasons why, if you'll notice in, in, in the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, where people are like engaging with God, they're like, hey God, we love you, what's your name? You know, and you're like, oh, they just want to worship God by his name. No, because the name has power. And what they want to do is be able to get some of the power of God. And God's like, I'm never going to tell you my name. And actually, that was a major thing within Jewish theology over the years. Because everybody's like, well, God's real name in the Bible is Yahweh. But by the way, Yahweh, there were no vowel markers on that name. So all we know is the name was Yahweh. Like, it's no, there are no vowel. We don't, it, it's all, it's letters with no hard consonants. Nobody knows what the name of God is, and that's the way he prefers it. Because when you're trying to co-opt something like that, you know, he's like, I'm not going to give you my name. But you recognize that your name is powerful, right? Some of you are parents. And you've given your kids multiple names. And that comes out of your arsenal every time they do something that's really bad. 
Because you start calling them by their middle name, and you're like, holy crap, mom is serious now, right? It was the only time, and by the way, self-disclosure, Eugene, so I knew, you know, you're like, really, really? But I knew when Stephen Eugene came out, I was like, holy crap, I'm in a world of hurt. Why? Because there's power in the name. Because the name, friends, brings significant to you. Actually, you know, I was thinking about this too, is that through my last trip last week, and I ended up in D.C., and this isn't my picture, but I was like, one of the most powerful monuments in our nation is a black piece of marble with names inscribed into them. Which is funny because even the people when they designed this, a 21-year-old lady designed this wall, and some of the people were like, no, we needed a statue. So they actually built a competing monument over there, and the one place almost everybody visits in Washington with all the sites is this big black wall with just a list of names. Names are incredibly powerful because when you ascribe a name on somebody, it becomes tangible. When you hear that a child was senselessly killed, maybe you pause and have some pain. When they apply a name to the child that you hear is killed, it becomes real. I say that in this story, Jesus ascribing a name to Lazarus, and again, it was just a random name, like Bill or whatever, right? So he throws this random name on it, but refuses to name the wealthy. What he's showing, again, is how he's going to flip the switch. Because all these people think that they will be known because they are rich and in favor, and God loves them. And he's like, no, I'm going to name the person who is forgotten. One of the benefits that I don't have to preach every week right now is I have time to ruminate on this. So last week... Um, I was in, I did my East Coast tour for work, and I I was supposed to be in Queens on Saturday, so I had a chance to walk around New York City, which is, you know, I I just love massive cities, so it's just interesting to me. But it was something that, thinking about this text coming through, is that as I walk through the city, you just neglect how many places now, businesses, have like the names of people on them. Like, I was just walking by, and there were all these types of things. By the way, Trump Chow is a, a treat right now. Like, that place, that is like Mardi Gras or something. I don't know. But you see all these places with their names just in, 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 in just over the door, which is the significance of influence and power. And then I walk down right in front of those stores, and there are people begging for things, and they are anonymous. They are forgotten. People are noticing the name up here, but nobody cares about the name right there. What Jesus is trying to do is take this prescribed view of reality, right? That we know the names of influencers and the important, but God cares about the nameless. He knows their name. For you and I today... Even if you're like, hey, I don't view myself as wealthy, I don't view myself as being above, I don't have this, that's fine, right? We, we don't have to identify with the rich man in the story, but we do need to heed the lessons of it. Because by virtue of living in the United States of America, we are the wealthy. As we span the globe in which we live, we are blessed, we have the power, there are people who do not. It's difficult for us then to apply this to our lives. And I will admit to you, rather transparently it's even tough for me some of the worship team was here but this morning 
We're sitting there. I'm, I'm at the booth. They're worshiping. And then Dylan pauses. And he, by the way, this has happened many times because you do a great job at this. Dylan pauses and is like, hey, you. And I was like, who's that? Like, I don't know who that is. I turn around and there's a guy from the neighborhood who's sitting in the back pew. We've been in this neighborhood for 13 years now. You know, we have as a church. And as such, I get used to people coming into our services early. And generally, and I would say, when I say generally, I would say predominantly, when somebody comes in early, they, they just want us to give them money. Now, even that statement right there, that's a loaded statement, right? They want us to give us money. So, like, Steve, that's not full of compassion. It becomes difficult because the longer that you live in the neighborhood, the more that you see everything within the neighborhood. And I forgot his name, but I knew the guy in the back. So I was like, remind me your name, Robert. I was like, and he's just like, yeah, he was like, came in. I was like, Robert, we know each other. Like, Robert has lived in this neighborhood longer than I have. And, you know, Robert and I have connected on multiple levels. He just forgets about that. The reason I remember is because every time I see Robert, I'm always handing Robert money because he always has some sort of story that continues to go through. And every time we have the story, it becomes difficult and difficult and difficult. So I'm processing through this conversation with Robert. You know, he's telling me all these stories. Half of them I know are fabricated. There might be some truth within to it. And at the end, you know, you know I was just like, hey, Dylan, why don't you come back? And I had Dylan pray for him because there's this part within my mind. It's like I'm still so much of an a-hole that I sometimes struggle with this, right? Even on the day where I'm trying to preach upon this chasm. Because it's difficult for us to be in reality, right? We want it to be clean. Like, you know what? Sometimes they're, they're the, the poor are in a complete powerless place, but friends, there's still always going to be people to take advantage of that. And even at the point where Robert's just like, hey, I'm not going to go buy booze with this or whatever. And, you know, I said, you know what, Robert? The way that I've approached things over the past decade plus is this. this everything we have is the Lord's. I'm going to trust it with you, and we're going to pray for you, and we're going to bless that along the way. And he's like, that's good thinking. And I'm like, well, at least... I have that going for me. That's the best we can do, friends. Because the problem is we look at the chasm and we start to make excuses for both sides. The only thing you and I can do is just to trust that we're living as Jesus would have us. And we're viewing people as human beings. And like Lazarus, we're allowing them to have a name. So my challenge for us this week is that as we're across in our world, whether it be somebody who is at the top of the social economic strata or people who are mired in the depths, do this this week. Find their name. Find their name. View them as creation of God. Someday we'll be in eternity. I want them to be with us. And in doing so, there's no way I can do that if I see them as nameless people. We have to provide a name. You know why we have to do that? Because we ought be nameless. But our Savior knows our name. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, The shepherd opens the gate, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name and he leads them sisters and brothers allow the shepherd to lead you this week he knows your name let's pray heavenly father to you be all praise and glory we have so many names by which we refer to we we talked about that earlier you guard that 
But the one thing is within this, all, all that we read here, the idea that you know us by name, that's, that's a thing of power. That anonymity can sometimes be used for power, but Father, there are so many people who live in this world, anonymous existence, but you know their name. So as we discuss, Father, challenge us this week. Maybe there are people all over the spectrum in our lives that we don't know their names. Maybe we just need to find their name to see them as you see them, as loved by you, as your sheep, and you desire to lead them out. Father, while we're thankful that you know our names, help us to live lives that reflect the holy name that you have. Help us to do better this week. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.